Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Every time we invite someone to be a guest on our show, we're already convinced that the work that they do and the ideas they bring have clear alignment with the Lead from the Heart philosophy. Our underlying goal, of course, is to repeatedly demonstrate to listeners that they have solid ground for leading their people and organizations more humanely, and we intentionally seek out guests whose insights can teach people how to feel more powerful as leaders and especially more self-secure. Our guest today, Dr. Julia DeGagney, rings all the bells for these aspirations, and as you're about to hear, brings a new dimension of understanding the human emotions and how they affect human behavior. We're going to discuss Julia's new book, Energy Rising, The Neuroscience of Leading with Emotional Power. Julia says it's extremely rare to see leaders consciously reflect upon their own life's painful emotional experiences. Moreover, to understand that those experiences are the primary force that impacts the way they show up in their lives and in the lives of others. Her assertion is that other people are influenced by our emotional energy. Consequently, our leadership of others relies upon our ability to use emotional energy to lead ourselves. One major hindrance to emanating an energy that helps make other people feel worthy and confident, valued and strong is that we don't yet feel that way ourselves. And Julia believes it's often because we shy away from confronting our own emotional pain, not knowing that addressing it and neutralizing it is the precise path to our empowerment. In Julia's words, the greater our sense of worthiness is, the stronger our emotional power. So today, we're going to dig into the idea that leadership is magnetic, and having talented, motivated, and creative people wanting to work with and for us means they must first be attracted to the power of our own example. And with that as a brief introduction, let me welcome you to the podcast, Dr. Julia DeGagney. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. I'm really excited to talk. Well, so am I. And I have a lot of questions about your book coming up, but can I ask you to please start us off with an overview of your book's title, Energy Rising, The Neuroscience of Leading with Emotional Power. So give us a wide view before we go into greater detail. Absolutely. So I am a neuropsychologist by training, which means I'm a clinical psychologist with specialized expertise in the brain. And for many years, so depending on how you want to look at it, 20-some years or 40-some years, I have been really thinking about and on some level working with emotional pain, so human suffering. And one of the most counterintuitive, I think one of the greatest paradoxes of our lives is that everything we want in this lifetime is on the other side of the feelings we think we can't feel. But in order to feel feelings that we think we can't feel, like learning how to work with feelings like anxiety and inadequacy and fears about rejection, that requires a tremendous amount of emotional power. So energy rising is really about how to work with your nervous system and ultimately the nervous systems of other people to lead lives that feel fulfilling, meaningful, where we have the degree of influence and connection that we want. So tell me what you mean by feelings we think we can't feel. I would love to. (laughs) So in the book, I really talk about two main constructs. One is emotional power and one is emotional pain. So when you ask me, what do I mean about feelings I think I can't feel? I'm talking entirely about emotional pain. And emotional pain is really simple. Okay, I know that the term can sound quite dramatic, and certainly in some cases it is. But it really means any bad feeling in your body. Now, we call those bad feelings a million different things. Sometimes we call it anxiety. Sometimes we call it fear, stress, overwhelm, frustration, irritation, agitation, mad. I mean, I could go on and on, right? But if you think about the brain, I always say it's the most precious real estate on the planet. I mean, that thing is like less than three pounds, So the brain has gotten really efficient in terms of how it organizes its networks. And so the parts of your brain that give rise to your bad feelings are the parts of your brain that give rise to your bad feelings. And so when we feel things like frustration or shame or irritation or aggravation or whatever, 
the instant kind of primitive reflexive response of the brain is that doesn't feel good. Let me get out of here. Uh Now, what's I think interesting for people to know is that on the primitive reflexive level, and I think most people understand this idea that we almost have two brains, right? One is this really kind of animalistic, primitive reptilian thing. And the other is this really kind of sophisticated human machine. On the primitive level, the brain really treats all pain the same. Okay, so if I put my hand on a hot stove, my brain's going to be like, let's get out of here. I'm going to immediately yank my hand back. If I have a conversation with somebody that's making me feel uncomfortable, that too is going to activate my fight or flight. I'm either going to immediately want to leave the situation and shut down, or I'm going to get, you know, aggressive, which typically isn't productive. So when we want more self-confidence, we have to learn how to work with the emotional energy of doubt. Well, I don't want to touch my doubt. (laughs) It doesn't feel good. I get it. But what you want more than to not feel doubt is you want greater self-confidence. If you want greater peace, you have to learn how to work with this energy of uncertainty in your body. The brain hates uncertainty. We're literally allergic to uncertainty, okay? I understand uncertainty doesn't feel good, but the thing you want more is greater peace. Another example is like most of us want deeper connection to other human beings and deeper influence for good. Well, in order for me to be legitimately more connected to people, I need to understand how to work with the energy of potential rejection. One of the things I think is really surprising and ultimately freeing and healing for the people that I work with is self-confidence hurts. If it didn't, every single person on the planet would be self-confident. Authenticity hurts. It's a hard lift for the nervous system. If it wasn't everyone on this planet, who doesn't want to be authentic, right? So everything we want in this lifetime really stops at the feelings we think we can't feel. And the greatest power in our life is emotional power. So let me ask you, if I feel self-confident, I'm feeling self-confident in this moment, where's my pain? Why am I experiencing any degree of pain? So that's a great point. I'm going to make an analogy to physical health, and I think it will make perfect sense for your listeners. So we all have a baseline of where we're at. So you have this brilliant podcast, and you understandably have a lot of confidence because you've done it a lot of times. But I bet in the early stages of your career, you did not feel this confident because you did not have that much evidence. So if I'm trying to get stronger, let's say I can only lift five pounds, And I go to the gym and I'm like, I want to get stronger. My only option is to figure out how to lift more weight. Now, if I go from five pounds to 20 pounds, it's going to burn. My body is literally going to shake. My muscles are going to shake. My heart's going to race. But I don't panic because I understand that that shaking is evidence of my increasing strength. It's the exact same with our emotional power. It's like we have a baseline. Some of us have a biologically higher baseline. Most of us have strengthened our confidence because of the things we've actually done in our life. So for example, let's say like you do a lot of podcasts brilliantly, but let's say you had to go testify in front of Congress. I would bet, and maybe you're an outlier and don't get anxious ever, you might get anxious But as you start to, for example, show up in front of Congress or show up in front of different audiences, you're building this muscle of emotional power. And so when we really understand how to strengthen our nervous systems, I think so much in our life changes. And the reason is, if you really think about it, the reason I am, you know, I've been asked before to do public facing things like be on reality TV shows or, you know, be on documentaries. And I always said, no, I'm, I joke, I'm I'm a Midwest academic who likes to go to two parties a year. (laughs) So the rest of the time, I just like to kind of be in my office and think and take care of my patients and take care of my clients. The reason I decided to write this book is because this is what I was put on this planet to do. The entire meaning of our life is emotional. Have you been successful enough in your life? It depends. How do you feel about it? How much money is enough money? How much attention is enough attention? How many followers is there enough followers? Depends on how you feel about it. Should you stay in your marriage? Should you have another child? All of these are mediated by affective or to say more sort of vernacularly, emotional systems in the brain. So what happens a lot of times 
is because a lot of us have lived lives where we were told both directly and indirectly to sever ourselves from our emotion. This is so heartbreaking because this is truly the most extraordinary form of human power. It's interesting because I think you know this in advance that this is very much aligned to what the thesis of this entire podcast is. So let me pin this down just before I get into some other questions to dig into this. So essentially what you're saying is, is that if I want to feel confident, the pain that I'm going to experience is in not feeling confident because I haven't done this enough times. We'll go back to the very first podcast, right? I want to do a great job, but I don't have any experience in doing this. And so I'm anxious about it. And the anxiety around that creates pain. But the more I do the podcasting, the better I get, the more confident I become. And you can apply that to self-doubt and ambiguity and uncertainty and all the things you mentioned. Am I sizing that up correctly? You're nailing it. You are nailing it. Yep. (laughs) All right. All right. I wish I had the bell here to ring here. So let's back up a little bit. Can we first talk about emotions in general? So I mentioned a second ago that we have this focus here. So like I was thrilled to see your work. And we've had other guests on this podcast speaking about emotions and how they influence human behavior. And you probably know all of them. Leonard Modnow, Annie Murphy-Paul, Zoe Chance, and the late Seagal Barsade from Wharton. And so we'd love to hear your understanding of how emotions influence human choices and behavior. And if I could ask you to take a little bit of a higher hurdle than you're probably used to in terms of just applying this, maybe I'm assuming concurrently, how emotions impact people's decisions on whether to be happy and engaged at work. Phenomenal question. Yes. So first of all, a lot of times, even if people intellectually understand this, we have this feeling that our emotions are done to us, that we find ourselves in an annoying situation with our coworkers or an enraging situation with our partners or the people on social media. And then we just find ourselves like plopped in our emotions as if this emotional storm just came over us and like rained on us. That's not true. Emotions are an energy that exists inside of our own body. And I think a really useful way to think about emotions is emotions are the Google maps of your life. They are these sacred neurobiological messengers. It it blows my mind and gives me chills every time I talk about it. Emotions are literally a neuroelectrical energy. And the Google Maps of your life are like, you know, turn left at the next intersection and leave this relationship. And then we ignore this messenger, right? So if we're powerful enough and really, by powerful, I really just mean in tune with our energy, in tune with our bodies, in tune with our life, we start to see that emotions are telling us what relationships we want to stay in in our lives and which ones we don't. They tell us what risks are worth pursuing and which ones aren't. They tell us what jobs we want to take on and when it's time to leave other jobs, right? So you asked, and I I love this question because there's a very, very simple answer. What makes us happy? Now, I understand that scientists and philosophers and psychologists have grappled with this since the inception of time, but here's my take. Your brain is the most extraordinary machine on the planet. Unfortunately, most of us spend more time with our damn cell phones than we do really understanding the machinery of the brain. The machinery of your brain has really three engines. You have an engine of behaving, you have an engine of thinking, and you have an engine of feeling. Now, I am absolutely not an engineer, but like You don't have to be an engineer to know if someone was going to like make some kind of vehicle or aircraft or they're like, hey, Mark, I have a phenomenal idea. I'm going to soup up this aircraft and I'm going to have one engine flying in one direction and then I'm going to have the other engine power the plane in the exact opposite direction. You'd be like, Julia, you need to like quit your day job because that's a dumb idea, right? But what happens with our lives is we We divide ourselves from our own energy, meaning we feel in one direction and then act or think in the exact opposite direction. Let me give you some examples to make this really clear. Thank you, because I was just going to ask you for one. So here's a perfect example. I'm exhausted. My body needs rest. I feel like exhausted and I feel like I need rest. What do I do? 
I overwork. Here's another example. I feel like I want to speak up. I've got something on my mind that I really want to share with the world or I don't really feel is right. I want to speak up. What do I do? I keep my mouth shut. People talk a lot about boundaries. I feel like I want to really honor my boundaries more and start saying no more often. Beautiful. Great. You feel like you want to say no. What do you do? You say yes. In all of those moments, not metaphorically, neurobiologically, you have literally divided your energy from yourself. Are we doing this intentionally? So where's the disconnect here? Are we not listening to the voice that's the voice of feeling? Correct. So I think to go way back to the beginning, and this is both happening on an individual level and a collective level, and this is why I love having this conversation with you and feel so honored to be on this podcast talking about this stuff. So the human brain undergoes extraordinary, extraordinary development in the first five years of life. So it's something astounding, like a million neural connections are made every second in year zero through three. Okay, so what's happening zero through three, zero through five, it's mind-blowing. The most powerful form of leadership on the planet is parental leadership. Powerful in the sense of influence is what you're saying. Influence, it's a fact of neurobiology, correct. Mm -hmm. So I, I work with a lot of trauma, I come from a lot of trauma. So I understand that our parenting exists on a continuum. A lot of us who even come from good homes get a lot of messages like this. The kid will come up and say, hey, mom, I'm hungry. And the mom will say, you're not hungry. Oh, and the child starts to think, I, I thought, I thought, I, I guess, mm, confusing. I thought I was hungry, but maybe I'm not. Or I'll see like little kids like bicker. And then someone will come and say, go tell him you're sorry. And the other little kid will say, but I'm not sorry. And then the mom or the dad will go, go right now and tell them you're sorry. Okay. You don't want to eat the broccoli, eat the broccoli. You don't want to wear socks, put on socks. So we're getting an incredible amount of messages that what we actually feel in our own body, and this is, by the way, also happening in functional households, okay, which is a huge asterisk. The feelings that we're feeling inside of our own, our own body cannot be trusted, and so we need to outsource our authority. Then you start to wonder why we have these really, really dysfunctional hierarchical systems of leadership in organizations, right? So I just wrote this piece for HBR Magazine that talked a lot about the energy of leadership. And a lot of times what happens is leaders micromanage. Leaders don't micromanage because they're bad people. Leaders micromanage because they think they have to and they're afraid. And then because we all kind of grew up in a culture and in homes where we were told to outsource our power to pay attention to other people, leaders start to think, if you disagree with me, it's not just you have another way of thinking. It's that you're threatening me. You're insubordinate. You're disrespectful. That story 100 times out of 100 times will ruin relationships. So these are leaders in every respect listening in here. So punctuate this if you wouldn't mind. Tell us specifically how we can go back to trusting our own feelings and aligning our behaving, thinking, and feeling engines so that we're all going in the right direction. Absolutely. I would say that if I had to boil all of the work down, it kind of comes down to this question of like, how do I engage my team? How do I engage? How do I motivate? How do I inspire? So here's, I think, a very clarifying truth about how human beings are wired to operate. You cannot create the energy of motivation or engagement or inspiration in another human body, okay? So the second you get clear on that, you're like, let me drop. I think even though sometimes people are disappointed to hear it, there's something empowering about being able to let go of a lever that wasn't even working anyways. Because what I see happen a lot of times is people think they should be able to create engagement in another human being or a team of people or in a culture and an organization. And they're exhausting themselves because they're trying so hard to have gravity make things fall up. It's never going to work that way. All right, well, then what's the fix to your question? Well, neuroscience is very clear that emotions are a thing of contagion. 
we literally catch each other's emotions similar to how we might catch a cold. Now, you don't need, you know, this is the idea of empathy. And we have a lot of neuroscience to back these things that we already in some ways understood from our experience up. And you don't even need the evidence. You can just look at your own life. And plenty of times you have been in a good mood. You've walked into a room where people were in a bad mood and felt your energy drop like a lead balloon. The alternative is also true, right? And you walk into a room, you're kind of feeling meh. And this is actually my favorite example. It's like people are just like cracking up. You don't even know what the joke is. And now you're laughing hysterically too, (laughs) right? So it's like we're truly catching each other's emotions. Okay, so then how does this relate to leading teams? Your job as a leader is not to inspire your team. Your job as a leader is to inspire yourself and trust that people will catch the genuine energy of your inspiration. Your job is not to be motivating. Your job is to motivate yourself and trust the biology. Trust that people will feel the energy of your genuine motivation and engagement. You already also know this is true because just reflect on the leaders in your own life who light you up. I promise you they were not trying to force anything down your throat. Well, it has to start with intention, though, right? In other words, the kinds of things that you're describing to create an environment where people can be attracted to an energy or to be influenced by an energy is the byproduct of a manager saying, I want to create an environment where people feel great. I want to create an environment where people feel like this is meaningful work and they're doing great work, they're valued, they're appreciated. I call this emotional currency rather than paying them in money. It's you're creating feelings inside of them. Are you aligned to that? Is that what you're suggesting? Here? Not only am I aligned to it, Mark, I feel like we're like riding the same wave here. Sometimes I will call it emotional currency as well. And I love this because it helps. I think it really clarifies like we understand obviously that money is a currency. We understand that time is a currency. So if you only have 24 hours in your day, you're not trying to get 26 out. I mean, you might try to work harder, but you get that there's only 24 hours. So one of the things when you really start to understand emotion as a currency, to your point, is you start to say, wait a second, how in the world can I give something that I do not possess? So for example, if you came to me, Mark, and you said, hey, Julia, I really need five bucks. And even if I really wanted to help you, if I didn't have five bucks, we would both get it. Like, hey, I don't have the money on me now. Sorry, sorry. Okay, fine. I cannot give a currency I do not have. I would actually say one of the biggest problems in leadership today is that leaders are trying to generate an emotional energy or an emotional currency that they do not possess inside their own body. The other thing, and I always like to make this practical and very clear for people, is it does not matter what you do or say. This goes back to like the three engines. It matters the energy in which you do it. Leadership is not about your doing. It is about the energy of who you're being. There's a quote that a lot of times I will hear sometimes like leaders or managers will say to me, they'll say, clarity is kind. And I'll say, I don't know, is it? If you go to someone and you say, I'm going to give this feedback and I am pissed as hell, but I'm going to say clarity is kind, but I'm kind of going to do it and like browbeat them with it a little bit. The person is going to know exactly what you mean. They're going to feel the electricity of that frustration or rage or contempt. So when you say that some leaders don't have it in their bodies to create that energy, so... Does that mean that they're not the right person for a leadership role? Or does it mean they're not aware of the energy that they're putting out? Can we learn to be that person? Or is it just binary? Some people don't have it. They're never going to get it. And they shouldn't be in a leadership role. And we need to find people who have it so that those are the people that are creating these great environments. Which is it? 
Oh my gosh, I think it absolutely can be created and learned, right? I mean, I think I would be like the worst neuropsychologist. Yes, you (laughs) I'm leading you there, but I also want to hear it from you. So I did a lot of social justice work before becoming a neuropsychologist. I worked in U.S. politics. I did a lot of international humanitarian aid. I come from a family for a lot of reasons. We don't need to get into them, but, you know, social justice was really emphasized And it's sort of a strange thing to say that understanding human biology can be so redemptive. I think that most people overwhelmingly have the capacity to be such powerful leaders. Why? Because they have access to their own emotional energy. And the number one thing that people want on this planet is access to their own power. And by power, I don't mean like command and control over, you know, tons of people. I mean, access to my own wholeness, access to my own energy of my own self. So when we see people at work, like this is the neurobiological reason for why authenticity is such a hot topic these days. When we see people really being the very thing we want more than anything else on this planet, it is very magnetizing. But a lot of times what happens when our leadership goes sideways is we don't feel safe. We're playing all the roles. We're doing all the posturing. We're doing all the things we think we need to do. Why? Because we're out of touch with our own emotional experience. And then this thing happens where we then start assuming bad intent of other people. They don't really like me. They aren't really serious about this job. They're not hardworking. I will tell you, and people, I think this is another clarifying moment for people. I do lots of trauma work. I would suggest to you that one of the top most hated emotions in the human experience is not one that people typically think of. That emotion is confusion. The human brain is a pattern detection machine. It's trying to close the pattern, close the pattern, close the pattern. When we send an email to someone and they don't send it back as our pattern detector would predict, maybe we're expecting an immediate response. We don't get a response. We wake up the next morning, still no response. We don't think maybe they're out of the office or maybe their kid gets sick. We think... I did something wrong. Correct. You see, the pattern detector is going to close the pattern. Unless you understand what it's going to do, it's going to close the pattern in a protective way. Your brain would rather have you survive than be successful. So it's going to say, oh, you better go on high alert. You better get hypervigilant. And then we as leaders start to bring an energy that then poisons the well of our team. So, you know, you ask this question is like, how can leaders strengthen their own emotional energy? It's like every moment, let me ask myself two questions. Am I assuming good intent about the people that I'm here to serve? And number two is you don't have to have this whole, you know, life plan or 10 years from now. What is the most emotionally honest thing I can do in this moment, in this moment? I think those are two incredibly simple and clarifying. I love those. I want to ask you if a third could be added, if it's already, maybe it's redundant, but how am I making people feel in this moment? Does that play into this as well? It does. The only thing I would caution about that is, so obviously being aware of our impact on others, especially as someone who has influence, authority, power is deeply important. And I also think, I'm speaking in very, very broad strokes right now, but I think you know you can kind of divide people again, these very clumsy strokes to people who are maybe need more sensitivity and more empathy. And that's a great question for them. I also work with a lot of leaders who are what I call pathologically people pleasing. They're too obsessed with what do people think? They like to call themselves consensus-based leaders. But when we do this really powerful work together, we actually see that it's a fawning response. Mm-hmm. It's an oxymoron, consensus leader. <laughs> you know, can't always build consensus. Sometimes you have to go down the road you think is best, right? Right. And I think a lot of times what happens is we're so invested in the emotional, ex- our hallucinations, if we're really honest about it, because we don't know what the actual experience in somebody else's body is. So we're saying like, are they mad? Do they like it? Do I care enough? What about we get into what I call the overs, overthinking, overexplaining, overpleasing, overaccommodating. And in that moment, we create a lot of pain for ourselves and for our team because we're not acting out of our own power. We're acting out of this weak kind of people-pleasing energy. 
So I know that those managers exist. I don't necessarily think I have the experience that they're a high percentage of the population. Is it your experience that they are? I will say you got to go a little bit deeper. Let me let me sort of say this and tell me if this answers your question. So I would say when it comes to high-performing leaders, one of the greatest sources of pain is what I call the overs. And I just gave it to you. Overworking, overdoing, overanalyzing, overcommunicating, overdemanding, overthinking, overgiving. I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on. The only reason that anyone overdoes anything is because they are sitting with the emotional energy of fear. The difference between working and overworking is galactic. Working is amazing. It's invigorating. We were put on this planet to love, play, and work, okay? Overworking is I am terrified that if I don't stay up till two in the morning sending emails, I'm going to become irrelevant. I'm going to lose my footing. So I actually work with very, very senior people. They certainly don't look fawning or people pleasing in the traditional, like they don't look meek, but they are consumed with their fears of rejection and their fears of losing relevancy. That's fascinating because I have seen that. And it's a bit of a paradox for me as I'm listening to you because I see that more at the senior level than I do at the lower levels. And I think it's almost like that's our model for who we want. You know, we want the leader that's going to be available 24-7, who's going to subordinate all their personal interests in order to be there for the company kind of a thing. I find that fascinating. I also am wondering if, like, you have a prescription So I'm a leader, I'm listening to this, and I'm thinking, okay, so I may not be connected to my feelings, and that's holding me back. I may be in the over category, and I also may not have the intention, the proper intention, in order to create the environment that I'm hoping to create, and maybe even thinking I'm trying to create. So come back to me with, if I were a leader listening to this, this is what I would suggest you think a lot about. Hey, this is going to maybe take a sharp left turn for people, but stay with me. I would suggest that you start to really think about, to really meditate on and get in touch with the energy of your humiliation. I believe, and I've come to this through a very empirical way, that the most powerful, you know, I don't want to be so unequivocal, but one of the most powerful energies on the planet, and by one of the most, I mean like top two, is the energy of humiliation. This really came to me. So let me say this. We know very clearly that through lots of evidence that a human being cannot be well and feel unworthy. Okay. So I don't care if you call it unworthiness, humiliation, shame, embarrassment, awkwardness. These are all variations of the same kind of neurologic phenomenon. All right. One of the ways that this came through for me so clearly, I'm going to tell you a little story and and then I'll sort of link it to leaders. I've worked with a lot of combat veterans, a lot of combat trauma. So I was treating PTSD and and them and they would come. And at, at the early stages, I thought, I know what you're the most afraid of. You're the most afraid of dying, right? It seems like a very logical fear for a human being to have. And what I was hearing, by the way, this was not group settings. This was like individual one-on-one. So there's like not any group thing going on. I was hearing across guys, across conflicts, across continents, that the greatest fear, worse than a fear of death, was the fear of humiliation. The fear of being the guy on the mission who other guys couldn't depend on. The fear of being the guy on the mission who didn't have his shit together. The guy who could not protect his friend, the guy who it just would go on and on and on. And what they were saying, some in very direct terms is like, I would rather be dead than have to feel this feeling. Then I started to like pay really close attention to the work I was doing in organizational and corporate settings. The human brain is so wired against humiliation and your brain is exquisite at its job. In other words, your brain, if your brain lets you get clocked in the head before you experienced pain, it wouldn't be that effective of a device. So your brain is constantly patrolling the perimeter of your life, searching for any information that might, could, maybe, possibly, a little bit, sort of, kind of, be humiliating. Give me an example of how this plays out in a leadership role and how to remedy it. So the example would be 
I was working with a very, very senior leader at one of the tech companies. And you would have thought that he was so on all classic metrics, he looked so confident, but he came to me because he was getting very intimidated to speak at these very high level meetings with some of his peers. And he was saying like, is my idea good enough? Or what if I suggest this and they don't like it? It's like, if you say it and they don't like it, what's the worst thing that could happen? They go, okay, we're going to move on to a new idea. Or, But he's like, no, the worst thing that would happen is that they would see me as stupid. They would see me as irrelevant. They would see me as not a contributor. Do you see this? All Everything he's saying is really pinned in this energy of humiliation. I mean, obviously, he came to you for help to be able to overcome that. But was his inclination before he came to you to just be quiet or did he take the risks? I mean, what was the behavior? The behavior was, and this is why when you asked me earlier and you said, well, a lot of leaders like don't seem that fawning. And I agree that there's a lot of leaders who don't seem meek, but I think a lot of leaders are kind of in this, this very suffocating people-pleasing, I need to overperform in order to be good paradigm. So he looked like a very confident kind of gruff manager. He was a very senior leader, as I mentioned. So he was getting a lot of feedback from his staff that he was intimidating. So he was kind of, you know, like a, a rough guy, don't make any mistakes. But as we really started to like pull it back, and I actually use this example in Energy Rising, I take you through like a sample dialogue that I did with him okay, well, why can't anybody make mistakes? Because then the project will fail to launch. Well, what happens if the project fails to launch? Then if you really drill down- It's a bad reflection on him. And you see there, Mark, we have to go further. Because if you say it's just a bad reflection on like me managing this project, that doesn't get deep enough to the lever you need to touch in order to really drive change. What this means is that I am a loser. Okay, so- There's two things that come to my mind. One is I fundamentally believe people are operating out of their childhood selves most of the time without being aware of it. So that feeling of humiliation goes back to third grade, right? Where they said something stupid and all the kids laughed and they were like, I never want to experience that again. But now we're adults and we're managing people in big organizations and we're still being held back by these impulses that are out of date inaccurate, but undermining us. So what's the advice? Give me like a precise prescription of how do I get to a point where I'm actually comfortable with humiliation? I'm actually willing to say, hey, this might be a good way to go. And everybody goes, really? Like that doesn't make any sense. And you go, oh, okay, well, we move on. As opposed to now I'm looking like the fool here and somebody's going to take my senior vice president title away in my car and I'm going to lose my job in my home and all of that fantasy stuff. How do you help people, Julia? Absolutely. So I just want to say here, I mean, the entire book is about this. And so it's like divided into eight codes. So I have so many concrete, clear examples and strategies. I'll, I'll just take one and I'll make it kind of bite size, and then we can go from there. But I want people to understand like, This is the work of the entire book, because I think the question you're asking is so big and so transformative. So I'll just give you a couple of examples. The first is something I call hold your emotional shake, okay? As long as you think I cannot open that door because there's a monster in that closet. In other words, I can't say this thing. I can't speak up. I can't suggest this idea because there's a monster in the closet. In other words, I'm going to get embarrassed. I'm going to get humiliated. People are going to find me out. Your brain will consistently and tirelessly protect the perimeter of that door. What that then means, though, is if you're serious about your expansion and your growth, growth literally means exceeding the old parameters. So you just said, there's no way I'm going to open that door. Well, you have to be willing to what I call hold your emotional shake. Which means, and I gave the gym example earlier, I'll give it again. If I want to go from five pounds at the gym to 20 pounds at the gym, you bet that when I go to lift that 20 pounds, my body is going to shake. Most people who've ever worked out don't even get alarmed. They just go, it might not even be an enjoyable sensation, but they know that it's satisfying because that is the very evidence that they are getting stronger. So if I go to speak up in a meeting that I typically would close my mouth, I will literally shake My voice will quiver, my heart will race, my hands will sweat, my hands might tremble. 
Most of us, until we understand what the nervous system is really doing, will use that as a sign to cease and desist immediately. And you will think to yourself, this is such a big piece of, and this is really one of the main premises of energy rising. You will think that your anxiety belongs to the situation. In other words, you'll come up with a story. I can't speak up in this situation because Bob looked like he was really in a bad mood. I can't speak up quite yet because uh, there's a few more I's to dot and T's to cross on this project. Your energy does not belong to the situation. It belongs to the emotional pattern. If you want to change, you have to hit a new height in terms of your emotional expression, which will cause you to shake. There's no way around that. So I start to say, okay, I'm going to speak up no matter what. And the way I think that this is really clarifying is I talk about this idea that if we really want to grow, I think a very soothing paradigm is what I call picking a more powerful pain. What a lot of us are out there doing, and there's no shame in this, it's like we're looking for the pain-free option. But the problem with that is there literally is not one. And what happens is because we're afraid to speak up or we're afraid to lead differently or we're afraid to lead more courageously or authentically, we start avoiding things. But every time we avoid, we atrophy. Our leadership atrophies a little bit. There's no staying static. It's just a false option. Again, it's like trying to get gravity to make things fall up. It's just a waste of time. So in a world, and this is what it means to be human, where there is no pain-free option, let me choose the pain that empowers me more. I like that. You're really urging us all to be courageous, knowing that the other side of courage is transformative. Because I think what happens is, and I'm almost certain that this guy that you were working with didn't get to be a senior leader without being smart, without being competent, without being respected. So even if he said something, what he may perceive to be stupid or ignorant or misinformed or whatever, that created a sense of embarrassment and humiliation, that by doing it and seeing that the chair didn't blow up, the HR didn't come in the room and ask him to leave, that it was like, hey, like I can do more of this. So once you start building that kind of momentum, then that pain goes away, or at least you minimize it. Is that a good summary? It's a wonderful summary. And yes, your brain and your nervous system habituate to a new level of emotional power. Just like you said, you're able to very effortlessly pull off this like really big podcast. It's because like your nervous system has habituated to being able to hold this much energy. Hmm. Let me just say this other piece too. So one of them is we think that our life is defined by situation after situation after situation. In other words, and I'll continue to use this guy. So the reason he actually came to me is he had made a couple of job transitions and he was starting to get frustrated because he was changing the jobs and still not feeling good. He was feeling very classic things. He was feeling stressed. He was feeling rest. He just was not feeling good in his body right? He wasn't feeling good in his marriage. He wasn't feeling good at work. He wasn't feeling good with his team. This guy's brilliant. He's like, I'm smart enough to know that like, okay, maybe this isn't the thing, but like, what do I do? The healing comes when we do this really counterintuitive, but very, very powerful thing where we let go of the situations before us. Let me explain this. Your brain is a pattern detection machine. Okay. It's going apple, 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 fill in the blank. It's probably going to be an apple. Now, the thing is, your brain's not actually talking about apples all day. So, like, what is, every machine needs a power source. What is the power source that's powering the function of this pattern detection machine? The power source is emotional energy. Now, here's this, like, transformative moment. When it comes to the ways that I hope that we all like ourselves in some ways, and I also know that there's ways that we don't like ourselves, But there's not a million ways that we don't like ourselves. It really gets to be boiled down to something quite clear and simple. I always say that clarity is the foundation of all power. So most of us are going through our situations with an emotional sensation. Now, maybe the sensation is something like this. People always disappoint me. People always disappoint me. People always disappoint me. Now, let's say I get a new job or I get a new team member or whatever. Sure, I might get a spike for three months or six months, but I promise you, your brain will return to its baseline. What's the baseline? The emotional energy. 
So I promise you, if you are carrying around an emotional pattern that says people disappoint me, you will find confirmation in the external world that people disappoint you. I want to give you some confirmation here and tell you that as I'm listening to this, that through the course of my career, particularly early on, and many people who've read my book know that like, I didn't have the ideal upbringing and in fact had one where I was shamed and emotionally abused. So self-esteem was something that I had to build from the ground up after leaving my childhood home. So as I'm managing people, particularly early on, what I can tell you is that I was always anxious about humiliation. And, you know, am I the right person? Do I have the right idea? Can I do this? All of those kinds of things. People are going to follow me. And so there must have been some internal drive that said that take the more powerful pain to use your language because I did that routinely. And it built, it did exactly what you said. Like I got to a point where humiliation wasn't my big problem. I built that strength over time. So the advice that you're giving is actually fantastic. In fact, it reminds me of Robert Frost's famous line in one of his poems. He said, the only way out is through. So you have to take the hard road because the hard road will get you where you want to get to. Hey, Julia, we're going to take a brief departure from our conversation and move into something we call the heartbeat round. To help us learn about you more personally, I'm going to ask you several questions, but this time you need to answer them instinctively and quickly. In other words, in a heartbeat. Are you game? I'm totally game. All right. Your favorite emotion. Oddly enough, humiliation. Figure out what to do about your humiliation and you are totally free. The common denominator problem of the majority of people who seek help from a neuropsychology professional. It boils down to this question. This is the number one question. How can I get these people in my life, my teammates, my spouse, my kids to behave differently so I don't have to feel the feelings that I'm feeling? So people are coming to me with this common denominator problem of how can I change other people's behavior so I don't have to feel what I'm feeling? Wow. Plenty to unpack there. A mantra that you use to remind yourself of your worth, value, and personal power. My body is engineered to handle hard feelings. The negative self-belief you had to personally work hardest to eliminate. That I needed to overwork in order to matter. Greatest new insight you specifically gained by writing your book. Oh my God, changed my whole life. Deepening my understanding that painful or hard feelings are really here to enhance our empowerment and our connection to others. One book of any genre you wish everyone in the world would read. I really like The Untethered Soul that I reread recently. Hmm. Your synonym for the word heart. Emotional power. It's all about human wholeness. Hmm. Love that. The quality that derails the most leadership careers understanding that you are the emotional signal to which your team is calibrating. One thing you hope to see change in the world. That the powerful people on this planet understand that transformation will never happen until they're willing and able to confront their difficult feelings. One subject you think all leaders would be wise to bone up on. Oh my gosh, the relationship between emotional energy and their leadership. Prediction about the future you're pretty certain is going to come true. All of this AI stuff has been fascinating to me as a neuropsychologist. So in the race against artificial intelligence, what's going to happen is we're going to either be crushed by the machines or unlock extraordinary levels of human emotional intelligence. Which I think is where you're leaning on hoping. <laughs> The crushing isn't sound as appealing as the latter. No. <laughs> the trait you admire most in other people. Emotion regulation and humor. Cultural value every organization should have. Oh my gosh. The value of difficult feelings. Skill improvement you're working on right now. Emotion regulation. And if you could teach every workplace leader in the world one thing, what would it be? Not to be a broken record, but that you're not going to get where you're trying to go if you don't understand how to work with hard human emotions. These are very provocative answers. There's a lot of consistency, obviously, but it's also very thematic. And I like people leaving the podcast thinking about like a idea, like I heard her say this and this is resonating and I need to deal with it. And I think you did a really great job with these answers. So thank you for going through this with me. And thank you. That was fun. 
So as we're leaving here and closing this down, what's the one thing you want everybody to know? Like what's the most powerful piece of advice that you can give leaders listening? Yes, I'm so glad you asked me that question. It's this, that everything you want in this lifetime is on the other side of the feelings you think you can't feel. And I think this is such a, a beautiful, healing and accurate shift. Those feelings that you feel like they just keep tormenting you, your doubt, your fear, your anxiety, they are not here to torment you. They are here to lead you home. If you, for example, take an emotion like that we haven't even talked about, like jealousy, okay? We've totally missed the boat on it. We say like, okay, I have this bad feeling of jealousy and I call it a, a shit emotional sandwich, excuse my language. But then we shame ourselves for feeling jealous. So it's like we have a bad experience, jealousy doesn't feel great and then we shame ourselves for like being small-minded or, or whatever. All jealousy is saying is, wow, let's say I wanted to do a podcast and I'm like totally impressed by your podcast, Mark. What jealousy is saying is like, wow, Mark has this brilliant podcast that's really changing the way people think about the heart of leadership. I too want to do something really cool. <laughs> it's calling me into deeper expression and ownership of my own life. But we need to have the presence of mind to think intelligently about emotion. And that's the true, you know, everyone has all these definitions of emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence is Am I thinking well about the way that I am feeling? Hmm. I like that. Julia, thank you so very much. On behalf of my audience, I really appreciate it. And I'm just very, very grateful that we were able to spend time with you. I'm so grateful to you too and all your listeners. So thank you for having me. Before I go, I'd like to ask you for a favor. Could you please introduce our podcast to just one friend or colleague this week? It dawned on me recently that if every listener got just one person to check us out, we'd double our audience overnight. And I've always said that growth of listeners is the most important barometer of our global impact. So wherever you are in the world, please tell someone you know that we would love to have them join us and check out the Lead from the Heart podcast. Our brilliant theme music is the jazz classic Take the A Train, written over 80 years ago by Billy Strayhorn. Our version is performed by the BBC Big Band Orchestra. I, of course, want to thank my team, Mr. Ken Boynton, Carrie Finnessy, Randy Yant, Anna Boynton, and my sound engineer and producer, Eric Oz. And as always, I leave you with my two consistent reminders. When you leave from the heart, your people will follow and love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening, and I'm signing off for now. Thank you.